stronger, be wiser. Our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, our moment, our seat, our table. Yeah. Hey, 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 our seat. every one of our listening audience, our special guest to our 15th version of Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. I cannot believe it has been 15 episodes so far. The Leadership Lounge, of course, was created to let people know of the African-American communities throughout Central Florida. We have been speaking with local historians from Deland, New Smyrna, uh, Mount Dora, and today joining us, we have Francina Boykin, who is from the community of Apopka. We also have with us community leaders, uh, Zakia Brown, who is with Pivotal Count Consulting. Zakia will be discussing with us ways in which we can heal through a lot of this trauma that we are ongoing as people of color and as people in general, as we continue to witness a lot of horrific deaths of African-Americans and how do we heal through that process. Joining us also is music historian, Eugene Phillips. Eugene is a member of Orlando United Rhythm Section. The Rhythm Section will be performing at the Hannibal Square Heritage Center Folk and Urban Art Festival this Saturday. And we want to know exactly more information about how did the Rhythm Section start? How did this genre, genre of music, where did it come from? So who better than to talk to than someone who plays, someone who knows the history? So to all our guests, to all our listening audience, we want to welcome you to Our Seat, Our Table. So good morning, Ms. Francine Boykin. Welcome to the table this morning. Yes, hello. Hey, good morning, Francina. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for the invitation to share in uh, the table. Absolutely, absolutely. Francina, I met you maybe two years ago. You were a part of the Truth and Justice Alliance in which you were working with the July, July Perry marker coming into Central Florida. I know that you are from the community of Apopka and the community of Apopka, I've actually worked at the high school many moons, moons ago. And one of the things that always interests me um, in Apopka is the vast diversity that's out there, very middle-class community, working-class family. So Francina, you're here today to kind of tell us, tell us more about Apopka and the wonderful rich history that is in that community. Well, thank you. I am a native Apopkin, born there 70 years ago. Wow. And um, have watched a lot of changes through the years. And uh, Apopka, for those who do not know, stands for 
potato eating place or big potato. Indians uh, in the early days planted potatoes in and around Lake Apopka. So Apopka uh, was incorporated in 1882. Uh, before then, it was known as the Lodge City. Uh, slaves in 1859 built the Masonic Hall, which is known as Lodge Number 36. It's the oldest Masonic Lodge in the state of Florida. Wow. Uh, early Black settlers uh, came to Apopka, and I can speak more from the years that I have in the last, uh, well, the last 20 years, I have delved into the early history of early Black settlers who settled in Apopka. Slaves were there in the, before the Civil War, living in and around, you know, the Indian uh, uh, territories. And so in trade off, if you want to call it that, for building the lodge, they were offered land deals and other amenities that helped them become established in the Apopka community. Um, okay. the early, early black settlers came um, after the Civil War around 1870s and settled in the community. And and Francina, Miss Boykin, when you say they settled, when we think of Apopka, I know South Apopka and there's also North Apopka. So which geographical area are we speaking about? We are speaking of North, not extreme North, but it is Northern, it is Northern Apopka, uh, wherein if anyone is familiar with the area, we're 441, Highway 441 and Highways 436 merge. Highway 436 dead ends in Apopka, for those who don't know. So the early black settlers settled in what was known as Mead's Bottom. Uh, Sarah Mead and her husband, <coughs> Lindsay Mead, came to Apopka in the late 1800s, around 1870, we think. Uh, Sarah Mead and her husband homesteaded in this area in what is now at four, Highway 441 and south of Highway 441 and south of Highway 436. Okay, right there at that intersection, that junction, right. actually. Yes, it's now the, it is now the uh, town's uh, city of Apopka town center, okay. where it's recently built a hotel. Uh, the hotel is built on property that was once uh, owned by a very prominent family, which was the Chisholm family, okay. uh, who came from South Carolina. But Mrs. Mead introduced most of the early black settlers to the area. They came as uh, independent farmers working on the railroad. And as one friend of mine once said, uh, William Gladden Jr. says that the black man didn't come to Apopka begging. So uh -huh. he, came with, he came with skills and he worked the land, uh, bought land and became very successful, namely the Gladden family. They were very successful black settlers in the Apopka area. What is the population of Apopka currently? 
I'm probably guessing, but it's more than 50,000 now. More than 50,000. Yeah, it's got to be more than 50,000 now. Right. Now, Francina, also, when we think of a pop-in, like I said, I, I work directly at the high school. It is a very multicultural uh, community. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, early on, uh, I say in the mid 70s, uh, well, and I, I put I back up in 1969, the schools desegregated uh, in a, you know, at Apopka more, well, it was Apopka Memorial High School then. So, around the 70s, many people started migrating to the area, uh, more Hispanics um, who came to work, you know, in the farms and the citrus groves. And uh, as the town took off in the mid 80s, as far as a large uh, growth spurt, you know, for the city, uh, mostly developing on the north side of town, uh, which is uh, northwest, if you're going for North 441, Zellwood, Plymouth, Tangerine, and those areas, because long before then, you know, citrus was the king. And for many people who don't know, the farming and citrus was the main employer of many people. So that's what brought people, you know, to the area. And as that, and then the late, the mid 70s, Walt Disney came on the scene. So people began finding that Apopka was very conducive to being a, you know, closer to Walt Disney World. So those changes brought in the diversity that we see now, uh, development in other cities. And Apopka has that still homey, quaint community concept, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah, I always see it. Um as a very uh, working class, family oriented community. I was actually there over the weekend on the pond side. I was in the field, that, um, that athletic complex. Yeah, the Northwest. Uh, yes. Popular, yes. Yes. Yeah. Believe now, it or not, when I hear the word, well, pancan is the name of a citrus fruit. Okay. And pumpkin, that used to be a nursery that grew orange trees or pumpkin trees. I can see and that. As a, as a young kid or young woman, maybe 12 or 13, before child labor laws came into effect, uh, I would work in the uh, nursery grow, where they grew the orange trees. And pumpkin was named, that was the name of the nursery and the citrus in that area. So that's, you know, why people, you know, they call it Pancan, you know, it's Pancan Road or Pancan Community, but it was owned by a very prominent family, which was the Pittman's family, which I, as a young teenager, worked, you know, in the nursery and by, I mean, it was not easy work, you know, sometimes temperatures get up to 100 degrees mm -hmm. and you're out in the middle of the field with no cover or you out there, you're working for 25 cents an hour. And that was back in the early 60s that I did that. But to see that area as it has become now, I'm always very startled because I'm like, you know, what, what I remember in that area was 
mountains and miles of citrus trees. Wow, 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 wow. And look at it now, look at it now. Oh, wow, Francine Boykin, we wanna thank you so very much for joining us. We feel that it is um, absolutely important that we know you know, we know where we are geographically in terms of the communities that we live in, but I think being able to connect to other communities uh, where we can kind of see a common thread and how we can better serve each other through the communities. So we want to thank you for joining us uh, this morning, sharing the magnificent history of Apopka. I think it's just a special community. I am, I, I'm certainly enjoying watching it um, just kind of grow, but still keeping the, the small town essence of, of who it is and how it got started. Well, when the expressways 429 and 414, I mean, that has really been a game changer. Um, yes. Expressways, yes. Absolutely. Oh, wow. So how can someone um, get in touch with you? We know that you're, tell, tell our audience about a few of the projects that you're working on. Uh, currently, uh, as I am the president of the Apopka Historical Society, okay. and we're working on projects such as right now, we're wanting to get a historical marker uh, for Meads Bottom, that, you know, the early settling, you know, community where Black people settled. Correct. And for those who do not know, in 1937, Apopka had an ordinance uh, prohibiting Black people to live north of the railroad tracks. So all of that history, uh, that ordinance was repealed in 1968. So you can see, you know, the attitudes changing about inclusiveness. The majority of uh, Black people live on the south side of town. So, right. but in the, uh, you know, my charge basically is the early Black history of Apopka and acknowledging those who made those great contributions before civil uh, rights laws passed, we had over 80 black businesses. And wow. now we moved down to one or two that are still ongoing. So right. working in that uh, area to bring awareness to what was there before and especially for our young people because they have very little knowledge. If we don't hand it down, they don't know it. Right, right, right. Well, listen. I personally thank you for the work that you continue to do, the education that you continue to provide. And and, and again, we, we just want to thank you for uh, being here with us today and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much. And, our and check me out at the Apopka Historical Society. We're at 122 East 5th Street in Apopka. We're open uh, Wednesdays through Saturdays. Uh, from 12 to 1, Wednesday through Friday, and 9 to 12 on Saturday. So you can possibly find me there because I'm always digging and scratching and looking for more history. And the more I dig, the more I find. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francine. You are listening. Thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely, anytime. You are listening to Our Seat, Our Table. Up next, we have with us a former Rollins uh, professor. Some of you may recognize um, her name, Zakia Brown. Zakia Brown is with Pivotal Growth Consulting, and we are all going through a very difficult time now 
We are in the middle of the Derek Shevin case. And um, for those of us who are working in the community, um, toe-to-toe with residents, um, those social activists um, doing their activist work, Zakia, the, the trauma is heavy. The, the burden is heavy. It's a heavy one to carry. And uh, we just want you to share with us, how do we, how do we get past some of this? How do we go through this? Oh, wow. That is, as you said, it's, it's, it's heavy. So first I want to say thank you, Barbara, for allowing me to be a part of this, to have a seat at our table. Um, it starts in many levels. So first we have to recognize that there are several layers to healing. Healing doesn't just begin um, with atonement or um, our reparations that we're asking for, or even with systemic changes. Healing is an ongoing process. So even though we start the process now, we still have years of of, um, of pain and trauma that we have to recognize and unpack and even begin to look at how we have transferred some of the systemic trauma, the systemic racism, the systemic oppression um, onto ourselves as individuals and then within our families and our relationships and so on and so forth. So the one thing I try to help, um, I try to bring to the conversation when I'm hosting uh, community circles is really recognizing what is, what trauma are we experiencing? So naming exactly how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, in talking to some people recently, even within my own friend circle, many of us are even just saying like, we're not sure how we feel. We're not sure if we are frustrated, we're tired, we're upset, we're disappointed and that's okay. And being able to even say that and be okay with that to say, there's so much happening. There's so much of this is going on. Um, recently, I was reading that uh, I was reading 400 Souls by Ibram Kendi. And even in that text, you're talking about 400 years of trauma, mm-hmm. 400 years of violence, 400 yeah. years of Black bodies being brutally taken away from the land that they were brought to and families and communities left to mourn and sit in spaces of discomfort and confusion and just all these different things that come along with it. So the first thing that happens for what I share is naming exactly what you're feeling Mm -hmm. and then channeling that feeling to recognize what you can do. So even in that healing process, we have this innate desire or this instinct to to go out and do something, whether it's protests or if it's right to legislatures or if it's um, remove our our finances, our economy from certain uh, organizations, companies and and, uh, vendors. But then is that really healing us or is that bringing attention to our pain? Correct. So recognizing that there are things that, what what can you do with what you're feeling? So if you're feeling uncomfortable, if you're feeling unsure, you're feeling um, sad and frustrated and unhappy, how can you channel that to something that allows you to um, demonstrate your feelings and your emotions, but in a way that doesn't cause more harm? 
Correct. 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 And it is, I, and I certainly agree with you in, in my case, I am exhausted. Um, I'm overwhelmed. I I've identified that and I'm, I'm a bit discouraged to be completely honest because of what I see around my immediate um, circle, meaning my immediate community and the disenfranchisement and sometimes what seems um, as lack of understanding um, terms like when I hear be patient, we're trying, we're working in incremental shifts, those things to me, again, um, that's not enough. And I, I use this example respectfully that if I was someone who had any kind of physical limitations and we needed some type of access in which to enter a building, you would start to see those things happening um, rapidly. So we're, we're uh, not just African-American people are saying this, but other people who are not African-Americans are seeing the disenfranchisement, but yet and still there is the delay in, in process to actually make um, systemic changes. Absolutely. And even with that, the, mm -hmm. that delay of um, it's happening, give us time, be patient. It's really the Real, the real, real, uh, realization that no one really knows what to do because they've never had to be forced to do anything. Correct. And even though many of us, and I'm saying many of us as in many of Black Americans, Black people in the U.S., people of color, um, we're all, many of us are sitting back like, how do you not recognize that this is an issue. We've been saying it for so long, but it's also systemically integrated within our, our DNA of us as a country. So when mm. you have things that are systemically created, when people are born into oppression, they're born into um, white privilege, they're born into any privilege, it's not a aha moment until they're faced with that reality. So when you're when it's that direct connection, and we talk about that a lot, when it doesn't become important until it actually impacts someone else, and when you have this ingrained um, culture of racial injustice, racial oppression, racial discrimination, how do we make this better? Mm -hmm. when it actually takes away from the system that we built and benefited from. So if we yeah. actually do better, we actually begin to dismantle and chisel away to racism in its full entirety. Who is, who is the most impacted by that? There's benefits there. When you're talking about um, people of color, black people, enslaved people in the U.S., there were there's still there's still money associated with our, our skin. There's still um, economic benefits associated with our skin. So if we start to chisel away as how racism has found its way in every system from uh, housing and living accommodations to economic advancement to educational sectors, every single part of that becomes now uh, fragmented. So Correct. now you're taking away the foundation that everything was built upon, and now you're impacting the people that have benefited from it. From this, yep, yep, yep. And who wants to lose uh, position? Who wants to lose their 
grounding. Um, Zakia, you mentioned uh, a couple items in, or a couple charges in which we can get through this. Can you repeat those as well, please? So the first thing um, I would share was naming what you're feeling, even if you're not sure of what you're feeling. Uh, the, the burden of the emotions that we're going to, that we feel, that we continue to feel, even when we rewatch the trauma of watching a Black life taken away, stolen from us, that creates emotions. Recognize it, name it, and then look for ways in which you can channel that emotion into um, something that's productive. So the healing part also recognizes that we want something to happen, but then we also have to take the that emotion, that pain, and do something with it that's productive. So it starts the process. And also naming, what do you want to heal? How does that look for you? What do you need to be able to heal? Is that going to be distancing yourself from social media for a while? Is that um, changing where you are in your communities? What are, you, are your community contributions? Is it teaching the community more about how our um, society engages us? Like it's one of those things of, what does that healing process look like for you? What do you need in that, in that space, in that moment? Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Zakia. This is Zakia with Pivotal Growth Counseling, and that is your website. Am I correct? It's Pivotal Growth Consulting. Consulting. And huh? Yes, and it, I can be uh, found at www.pivotalgrowthconsulting.com, uh, but then also reached at Zakia, Z-A-K-I-Y-A, at pivotalgrowthconsulting.com. Zakia, thank you so much. You have definitely given me um, a lot of things in which I can continue my healing process. So, of course, you're always welcome here at Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. We are just so very proud and honored to know you. Uh, we have worked with you directly through the Heritage Center when you, uh, when you were at Rollins. So we continue to wish you much success. And we're just so glad that we can call upon, upon you in which to get us through this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Up next, we have Andrew Brown. Andrew Brown is with Brown Box Creative Solutions. And Andrew will be highlighting the artist uh, this week, Eugene Phillips. Good morning, Andrew. Good Friday morning, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to our seat, our table. Whether you're listening on radio at 91.5 or you're listening to us on Spotify, we appreciate that you have stuck with us for all this time and you continue to listen to us because Friday morning at 9 a.m., you might be at work, you might be on the way to work, but we're so thrilled that you continue to tune into us each and every week. This week, we have Eugene Phillips, who is a musician. Good morning, Eugene. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Now, as I understand it, you are a historian of, of music as sort. Talk to us about that. Well, actually, I'm a member of the Orlando Unity Rhythm Section, mm -hmm. which actually is a group of percussionists. You can tell from my accent, I'm originally from the Caribbean. Yes. What island? And, uh, what, we call it the Orlando Unity Rhythm Section because what we have done 
and we have been doing, continuing to do, is to expose the advantages of being exposed to the complete African diaspora. So although we are, we are selling rhythm, and as you know, and a lot of people are seeing the influences of the various, all the, all the European countries before that slavery, the curse of slavery made an impact on the rhythm and the spirit of the African beat. It, you can see, feel it in any aspect of music today. So we, we have been spreading that message of the advantages of all of us being here in Orlando from various parts of the African diaspora, whether it be the West Indies, Jamaica, Trinidad, even South America, we are merging the influences of the Africa. Eugene, talk to us about the the cultural impact of the music from the African diaspora. Yes. Um, and how it has, as you said, infiltrated in all other music genres. Talk to yes. Us yes, but a, a lot of people got to understand as well that these patterns of rhythm throughout America's North, Central, and South America it's a symbol of freedom because keep in mind there was an effort by all european countries to ban the african drum mm. so people the slaves created uh instruments brazil is a very key example of that the, um, the variety of percussive instruments you have coming out of brazil mm -hmm. and its, its connection with africa Do you, do you know when those countries or regions banned the the African instruments? Oh, yes, as far as back of the 1700s, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, Britain. Uh, the, the one thing, uh, if, if you do the history of it all, France has always been the country that was open to the African expressions of, of not just rhythm, but art on the whole dance. You know, you, you, you can see that even with the African-American experience that people like James Baldwin, for example, they found uh, even Quincy Jones, they all spent time in France where they were able to see that connection and the impact that African music had uh, throughout the world. Absolutely. Now, do you do you think that that's a major reason why a lot of of um, so Earth we know that Eartha Kitt spent a lot of time in France, as you said, James Baldwin is is that part of the reason why that France was always so accepting or open to the African history and traditions? Yes, yes, because you uh, another factor that we have to connect them all together is the Catholic Church seeing that uh, when Isabella of Spain uh, sponsored Columbus, his duty was to make Spanish, like the major speaking influence, uh, not only just uh, language, but influence. But the Spanish, they too, similar to France, they were a bit receptive to some of the things that the slaves were doing in terms of rhythm. The major ban or effort to just outlaw African drumming came primarily from England. Now, through the Catholic Church, 
uh, especially but that's why carnival is so important that see mm. that pre-lenten season mm-hmm. the europeans always allowed some laxity for africans to express themselves culturally coming on to that religious period you know I so do. i uh, do the you one do. thing i can say uh, listening to some of the contributors to the program sitting at the table today is the fact that we have that excellent opportunity now that uh, the whole COVID-19 situation provided spectatorship for this systematic racism that we speak of. It's an experience we all have, regardless of whatever part of the world we are, because it it stems from uh, European colonization. Talk to us about, you mentioned, I'm sorry, you mentioned, you mentioned carnival um, yeah. and its importance. Talk to, for the listeners who are not familiar with the idea of carnival, can you explain how it originated and how it is important to um, not only Caribbean culture, but to African cultures as well? Exactly. Um, Carnival, which is uh, Latin basically for the farewell to the flesh, it was primarily a Roman Catholic uh, religious experience before. What happened was that period between Christmas and Carnival, as they were about to go into the period of Lent, Mm -hmm. they would always have this cultural and musical explosion a party, or as they call it, the Bacchanalian spirit. Mm-hmm. They would have access. To, they would give slaves some access to that experience. But initially, it was a house-to-house celebration. But obviously, the slaves had no houses to go to, so they would always like to take it to the streets. Ah. And as part of that, the Europeans tried to stop that. Because what was happening, they said, with all these drums and people coming out in the street, slaves were beginning to realize that they had numbers. So they did not want uprisings to take place. So they tried to stop them from coming onto the streets. So though it was initially a religious festival, it has become a symbol of freedom everywhere where there are descendants of Africans. So you would find carnival in Brazil. We have it here in the U.S. in New Orleans, right? That came from the French. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have it uh, uh, in England, all these various places. Now it's become this symbolic festival of freedom as expressed not just by Africans now, but even indentured laborers that, that were brought into the colonies to replace the African slaves. It's an interesting thing when you actually get into the research. No, it's, it's definitely interesting because even some of what you're discussing, I didn't even know about being from the islands originally. A lot of the, what you're talking about is just a cultural thing that we know, but it's it's interesting and really important to know the history of how it came about and why it's something that is so culturally important to so many people. Um, You mentioned you're part of Orlando Rhythm Unity section. You guys are going to be at 
the Hannibal Square Heritage Center tomorrow, which is yes. Saturday. Saturday, um, yeah. Talk to us about what viewers can expect when they come. What, what you would hear, and we hope to, like, educate, for want of a better word, the people who would be part of the experience is that the spirit of rhythm from Africa, everywhere slaves were taken to, it was always that element of rhythm. Some chanting was part of it. There were no instruments. They used sounds. They used beats. And what we are showing is that where we are today with just pure acoustic sounds, with the using all the other influences and merging them all together. Thank you so much. That was Eugene Phillip with the Orlando Rhythm Unity section. You will be able to hear them and so many more other artists, whether you're listening to musicians or you're coming for the visual arts or you're coming for uh, jewelry arts as well. It will be at the Hannibal Square Heritage Center on the 24th, which is tomorrow from 10 a.m to 4 p.m. Bring the kids as well, bring your mask. There's so much fun for the children as well as for adults, and we look forward to seeing you there. Before I go, I do, we're talking about music and its impact, cultural impact on um, listeners and the general public. Before I go, I want to also talk about an artist that has had an impact on me that is kind of surprising to most people but to those who know me very well it's not so surprising uh, as you may have heard through the news a rapper dmx who was born earl simmons passed away earlier this month and i have a few words that i wanted to share about him uh, most people know him for his 1999 album and then there was x featuring the songs what's my name and party up you can still hear those on the radio today but it was his second album flesh of my flesh blood of my blood that picked my interest this was in 1998 during a time period that was difficult for me as a teenager but was also difficult for him as well it was the very first album that I ever bought with my own money. What made DMX so relatable was his ability to make vulnerability cool. He turned so many of life's challenges, whether it was instability at home, addiction to drugs, or personal challenges, into a masterclass of lyrical lines and rhythmic flow that was as much raw as it was genius. As a teenager, I related to his pain and listened to him work through the pain. And it made me realize that I was also able to do the same thing. It also made me and my classmates rather stop picking on me for being different than everybody else. No longer was I the nerdy, effeminate kid. I was the cool kid because I knew the entire album from start to finish. I never got to meet DMX, but his music and his impact will always be with me. His funeral at this time, we're not sure if it's going to be live streamed or not, but it will be at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. 
and it will be a private affair. DMX, we miss you and we thank you for your impact on music and the genre of hip hop as a whole. You're listening to Our Seat, Our Table. You can also listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. Barbara, who do we have coming up next? Up next, we have LaVonda Wilder with the Eaton Bill Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for joining our small business spotlight with the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce. We have Mr. Sylvester Terry, the founder and president of the World Golf Center with us today. This Friday morning, let's welcome Mr. Sylvester Terry to the small business spotlight. How are you this morning, Mr. Terry? I'm well, LaVonda. Happy Friday to you and all your listeners. Oh, thank you. Happy Friday to you also. That's my new lingo I picked up from Barbara Friday. And I guess we're all excited about it being Friday. And this is our 15th episode. I can't even believe that we've gotten this far with our podcast. Outstanding. Yeah, thank you. Well, today we're going to ask you a couple of questions about your business, the World Golf Center. And honestly, when I started researching and looking into it, I really got excited because I've never played golf before, but it definitely looks like something that even a novice like myself could enjoy doing. And I know... I found that you will set this up pretty much at any location that someone asks you to set it up at. Can you give us a little history of how you came up with this ingenious idea? Well, that could be a long story. We're well over (laughs) 10 years in business. Uh, I will say that my background is in technology. Once upon a time, I've Work for a technology company without getting into too much detail, shortening the story for your listeners. I was attending a trade show where there was an after hour event in a ballroom. Uh, the ballroom had four bars. It was open bar, very nice buffet, lots of food, but the crowd was in a corner. The bartenders were standing around talking to each other. The attendants for the food were just standing there. People would come out of the crowd, grab a drink, grab something to eat, and go back into this corner. Obviously, it's a crowd. I'm going to go see what's going on. And there was a golf simulator in the corner. It was not the best simulator in the world, but it was good enough that people were uh, competing in a contest and found that because it was so attractive, there was a list of people uh, to play. I managed to get time to talk to the owner of the simulator, found out what he did and how he did it, and decided, you know, maybe this is something I could do too. Uh, He was from well out of the state of Florida. This happened to be a Florida trade show. And he indicated that there was plenty of room in the in that market that if I started a company, it would not hurt his feelings at all. And I did that. I invested in my first golf simulator, which we are able to do up to $50,000 hold in one contest. So as you were asking, where do we do it and how do we do it? We work 
trade shows, corporate events. So we've done the convention, Orange County Convention Center many times, every hall that's there, Shingle Creek, uh, even the Champions Gate, but we've done South Beach, New York City. We've been as far west as Arkansas, and we'll be doing the San Diego Convention Center for a medical conference in August. And that's the larger system. We've done hole-in-one contests at Mercedes and uh, the Genesis dealership where people would compete. And if someone got a hole-in-one, they'd walk out with a car. Then we have smaller systems as well, which I guess we'll get into that, that we can do. We've done church picnics. We do street carnivals. We've done hay stubs in Lake Mary, Sarasota recently. This is an indoor-outdoor system. And then even smaller trade shows, uh, for example, if the Edenville Chamber of Commerce decides to do a little business expo, we have a system that only takes up a four by eight foot space. It's a putting game that's fun for everybody from beginner to expert. Hmm, interesting. It, so do you have this packaged in like a package deal where certain things come with each package? I will say no. There's a yes and no answer in terms of a book that we hand out and you pick from what's there. Uh, we don't do that because each situation is a little different. If it's a one day, if it's a few hours, if it's a full day, if it's a weekend, uh, in the case of the San Diego event, it's going to be a full uh, six day week with two days of setup in the beginning and, and two days at the end because we're integrated in a large booth. They're gonna have a double-decker booth and the golf simulators in the middle of it. So each situation is a little bit different. Uh, just last night, in fact, every Tuesday night, we work with the UCF Soldiers to Scholars program uh, near Kirkman Boulevard, where they have a class set up for youth golf training through the Tilo golf program and Bob Biggers. And I'm a instructor with him working with kids and we use that four by eight uh, putting system I was telling you about. We carry it in, takes a few minutes to set it up. We conduct a class which lasts about an hour and then roll it up, put it back in the car and, and we do that every week uh, while they're in putting training mm -hmm. and then the Tilo program has a facility for the rest of it shipping and long shots and that type of thing so wow. in each situation we've done a, a couple of fundraiser events locally where they use the putting game and the outdoor system because they were limited on budget we were able to donate some percentage of our normal uh, commercial rate that enabled them to get two systems and do their fundraising. Uh, people paid to play. In some cases, they had a group that was just there for entertainment. And we were just part of the entertainment as you would food, beverage, a band, or a DJ. It sounds like it's personalized for each experience and it's inclusive it so that anyone can make a way that they can afford the experience. That's exactly right. We started with a large system that it's a, at the time it was one of the best simulators you could get. I invested in the 
engineering to make it portable or transportable. We, the forty fifty thousand dollar hole in one machine I was discussing, the one predominantly featured at our website, it's ten feet tall, fifteen feet wide, and over twenty feet deep. It's a turf, Huge. it's a hybrid turf material that you can play just like you're outdoors. You put a tee in the floor anywhere, any height that you want. You putt on it, you chip on it. It's a full experience in itself, but it's time consuming to build that room. Uh, then we have the other system I mentioned, indoor, outdoor. It's only a 10 by 10 foot cage to stop the golf ball. Uh, but overall, it's about 20 feet deep to allow people to stand. We have netting, safety netting on either side for that. So depending on space and budget uh, and the amount of time involved uh, is, you are correct when you said that we acquired systems that allowed us to engage more audience. Well, the one thing I noticed, I went over to YouTube because everyone seems to have a video on YouTube and I found that you do have a simulator and I assume you have multiple types of simulators. But what impressed me most was that I saw an adult playing with the simulator and then they invited a kid up here. So once again, all ages, all um, socioeconomic classes, everyone was thought of when you were creating these simulators. Right. I think the video you're referring to, the Philadelphia Eagles mascot. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. that was a, that's a golf show that we uh, used to do every year. And again, COVID put a big whooping on the entertainment industry because most of our trade shows and corporate events were thousands of people gathered, even uh, some of the charity and corporate events were still hundreds of people coming together. And since all of that was put to a stop, all of those events got canceled. But back to that specific event, uh, that was a golf trade show that we did every year. That was a three-day event. So there was an expense of travel, hotel, that type of thing for that system. Uh, Philadelphia, it was in Philadelphia, obviously, since the Eagles mascot showed up. Uh, it was actually during football season too. And he took some shots in the mascot attire and then brought up a kid who actually had a better golf swing than the adult yes. in the outfit. And yes. we also have a, and I'll mention another anecdotally, should be an image of this. We did the Essence Music Festival uh, one year in Houston where people stood in line or signed up to play and the line was 45 minutes to an hour between signing up and getting in. It was such an attraction. Interesting. And we often had people get in line and I'll go, okay, it's a 150 yard shot. Which golf club would you like, Lavanda? And you would say. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> You would say, I don't know because I don't play golf. So we had to develop a rapid golf lesson to teach you how to hold the club and swing it and make contact with the golf ball. Uh, at the time, we would bring people in in groups of 10, all of them needed lessons, and it was about a 15-minute lesson. Uh, we've gotten it down to about five minutes. And again, COVID 
and expanding our business capabilities over the years. There's a school of golf called Golf 8.5 by Kay McMahon. Hi, Kay, if you're listening. Uh, there's eight and a half things to do in a golf swing. Step one is the grip with your left hand. And 8.5, you're done. The golf ball's gone. And it's down the middle of the fairway every time. So we're able to teach six of the eight steps, which helps people in most contests to at least make contact with the ball and have a good time. And we can teach that to most people in three to five minutes. So are you telling me I, I am a, a beginner golfer if I've had no experience that your simulator works from beginner to avid player? Yes. The accuracy is there that uh, your the golf listeners in the audience will understand that you can draw a shot or fade a shot, which means you're curving it right or left, depending on your dominant hand. Uh, and that works outdoors because of the spin of the golf ball aerodynamics. All of our equipment is sensitive enough to actually see the spin on the golf ball, as well as the club head speed, angle, launch angles, there's a lot of technical jargon, but the accuracy of our machines work well with expert golfers all the way down to you. Yes. You your <laughs> so I was going to ask you what your typical player looks like or typical customer. So I can actually say that I'm a typical customer because you do work with beginners also. I will say that you're a typical customer because most of the people that approach us initially and the people I have to talk to to try to get more work are non-golfers. They're event planners. They're business people that don't play golf. They're very busy and don't have the three to four to five hours to spend on a golf course uh, or even an hour and a half on a driving range. They don't understand the golf, don't understand a golf simulator, but they were told we want a golf simulator at our event. So yes. I have to be able to sell the program and the capability to them. And with one exception thus far of the event planners that actually showed up to the event, only one chose not to take a try. I've managed to get everyone on and there's a annual event we did at the Disney property Again, obviously it was canceled for COVID, but I'm told they're definitely doing it again. And we will be there uh, supporting the trade show. Uh, and there's a couple of their bit planners that only play golf on the simulator once a year. <laughs> they don't Interesting. Do it they don't have time any of the rest of the year. This is a five day show. Okay. So after they furiously get it going, everybody's comfortable into the second day. The third day is basically a break. They come in and they play. And then the next two days, they're busy getting people ready to go. <laughs> Interesting. I'll definitely have to be on the lookout for that so that I can get my experience. And, and of course, my photo opportunity, because I couldn't be out there swinging without getting some good pictures in. So I have a couple of questions left, and then I'll let you go ahead with your day. Do you sell these simulators? We do. We have what is actually the most cost-effective teaching golf simulator on the market. It's very affordable, 
that beginning golfers can use this thing effectively and golf professionals that are going to teach and they have a small amount of space can also use this. It's called the T-Pro, which is teaching professional. And briefly, it has two sets of cameras. One set of cameras with uh, special lighting are able to see the golf club and the golf ball in super slow motion that you can literally see the dimples on the golf ball turn and change. The golf balls do change shape when you hit it fast enough. And then it also has golf courses and various types of teaching modes in it, everything from putting to the driver. And then it also plays various golf courses, the full 18 holes. We can play up to eight people at a time. Unlike traditional golf, there's only four people at a time. Then the second camera system captures the person in a video manner that you can replay it to show you your elbow bent right there. You're supposed to keep that straight, turn your head this way, all those little nuances that we want to teach in body mechanics to swing. So while you're learning to play golf, we can actually replay and show you what you did right or what you did wrong and why it went wrong or why it goes right. Hmm. That would definitely make me interested and more apt to want to play with the simulators. Right. And that there should be videos on YouTube as well for that. Uh, we were doing a T-Pro Tuesday on social media. So Instagram and Facebook has a few of our videos. Uh, I was partnered with a youth STEM program for several months last year, obviously prior to COVID. Uh, where we were doing uh, weekly videos. And there's also video of what we're going to work on is a multi-sport simulator. That system, I'm also a U.S. distributor for, plays soccer, football, baseball, rugby, frisbee, anything with a ball or a puck. It even plays ice hockey hmm. on the system. And we're now working with the vendor out of uh, London to create the portable version. So it fits in that 15 by 20 foot box I was telling you about earlier. So we'll convert it from golf to multi-sports, which again, opens the market for any level uh, because the skill levels on the soccer, for example, you kick at a goalie, we can set it at one, which means the six-year-old can score and we can set it to top level where we did during a trade show a semi-professional soccer player was in a full sweat spending 30 minutes to score one time on the highest level. He felt it was very accurate. So you've thought of everything, it appears. Well, we keep thinking. <laughs> when somebody, if you ask for it and we don't have it, I'll go find a way to make it happen. I like that. That's the way to pivot due to COVID and also for the market. Uh, Mr. Terry, do you have anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? And if not, give us your contact information. I'll do both. Okay, great. I'll say that I am Sylvester Terry at the World Golf Center. My direct email is S-T-E-R-R-Y at the World Golf Center 
all four words slammed together, dot com. <laughs> and my direct line, 321-246-7924. But I would also mention for coming through COVID, fundraising has been an issue for everyone. Again, traditional gatherings and that type of thing have been difficult. Uh, you should note that golf has been open pretty much in some fashion through COVID, which means golf tournaments could still happen. Uh, golf courses were, are excited to have people coming back as well. All of the COVID protocols are in place, as well as for renting our systems. We have disinfecting wipes and masks and gloves and different things that we need to keep everyone safe. Uh, whether you've been vaccinated or not, but also for fundraising, there are various solutions where we can bring out the equipment uh, for a reduced rate or we can do a profit share. We also are involved in consulting for golf tournaments that not only do we provide some equipment potentially, but we also help groups that haven't done it or haven't done it successfully set up the golf course, negotiate prices for play, food and beverage, sponsor packages, things that make it attractive for sponsors to get their branding dollars in, as well as something fun and unique for players to attract. So again, not just through COVID, that was something we'd started prior to COVID, but we continue going forward. So event planning, fundraising, attractions at all levels if you ask for it we will find a way to bring it to you oh i love that is our slogan the world golf center from maine to miami we bring golf to you awesome well we can't ask for anything more than that you've done an awesome job of letting us know about everything including included rather in the world of golf simulators. Thank you for joining our small business spotlight with the Edenville Chamber of Commerce and happy Friday to you. Happy Friday. Thank you again. Go higher, think greater, be stronger, be wiser, our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, our moment, our seat, our table.